Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Brinsley Schwartz. Brinsley, good to have you here. Good to be here, Bob. Thank you. Okay. For the Americans who are out of the loop, what exactly was pub rock? Easy. Pub rock was any music that any band wanted to play in a pub. There wasn't, there's no such thing as a, a music genre that you could say was pub rock. It was just what everybody played, anybody played in a pub. Okay, so then why did it get a label? What was different about it from what came before? I was, well, so musically, I'd say that the biggest difference between the two things was you get into words like honest, um, but pop rock was down to earth, just playing songs, and there were no no uh, long, sometimes tedious guitar solos or keyboard solos or drum solos. You never saw a drum solo in a pub, so so much more focus on the songs and the and the excitement, the the level of energy was was higher the audience was really close so they could they could get the vibe and see what was going on much better than uh bigger bands that played in big places and it also provided a place for bands that were never going to be able to play uh get up to playing in in big places uh somewhere to play and eventually some of them did get up to play in big places so well, let's set the scene. Let's put it in context. When did pub rock begin? Well, so it depends when you when you think it began. Um, Eggs Over Easy were the band, the first band that any of us uh, saw playing in a in a pub. They were American from San Francisco area, I believe. Um, we saw that. We we were fed up of playing in bigger places, mostly colleges, 
And uh, the idea of playing with an audience in front of you and not having to play your set of album songs, uh, you could play whatever you wanted, uh, appealed. So in the timeline, uh, we saw Eggs Over Easy. Um, two weeks later, uh, Dave Robinson, our manager, and myself uh, went round pubs in London uh, trying to persuade landlords that it would be a really good idea to have us play in the pub. A lot of them didn't didn't get it, but they did get that we would play for nothing until until they were making enough money to be able to pay us. Um, which so they liked that idea, and um, a few weeks later we were we started playing in pubs. And uh, pretty pretty soon, I mean, it went down really well. Pretty soon, there were as many people outside as there were inside. It was summer, so it was a good time of year to be doing it. And uh, pretty soon, other other bands joined in, got gigs in some of the pubs, and I would say, but that that's when it became pub rock. Where that's when roughly when the press took notice and labelled it pub rock. Okay, this would be what year? <laughs> well, what year did you start playing the pubs? Yeah, I I would say 70, summer of 71. Okay. So, for those of us who are not English, this is in London, or did it spread throughout the nation? It was it was mostly in, in London, uh, and closely around London, but yeah, I'd say it was in London. Okay, so we don't have pubs in the US. How large would these pubs be? How many people could be there when you performed? Um, Maybe the larger ones could hold uh, 150, 200 people. There was a a pub called the Kensington, which was had a large uh, mainly road, but a large pav- paving part outside. And uh, I, I definitely remember going out one hot, very hot summer evening and, and that, that section, that square being packed of people with people and the inside packed. So in all, maybe 400 people. Um, but mainly I'd say between 150 and 200. Like your, it's just the same thing in the States, like bars. Larger, what you called larger bars. Okay, and how many of these bars were there? How many were in the circuit, so to speak? Um, ten, a dozen. Oh, so not many. Not no, not a, not a lot. No. Okay, so when you start playing the pubs, do you how frequently do you play? And do you play at the same pub or different pubs? Uh, we we played in maybe four to six different pubs and uh, once a week or once a fortnight so we were you know we were playing just an ordinary amount but always mostly in pubs and when, once you established you could generate a crowd how much revenue could you generate um 50p per person on the door so maybe <laughs> maybe 100 pounds 200 pounds not a lot of money Okay. It's like it's like it is now. We don't do this for the money, we do it because it's fun. That's that's how it how it was. We weren't really looking for anything else. We just wanted to play. Okay, so 
Dave Robinson is your manager, and at this point, the act is called Brinsley Schwarz. Yeah. Do, you, do you say Schwarz with the T or without the T? No, we say it with a T, but it's, it rhymes with hearts. It's Brinsley Schwartz, not Brinsley Schwartz. One more time. I got it. How do you pronounce it? Schwartz. Schwartz. Yeah, so it rhymes with hearts. I, I got it. I'm trying to, yeah. you know, it's like in the UK, Ray, it's Ray Davis, and here it's Ray Davies, but... We'll soldier forward. So yeah. who's who's in the band Brinsley Schwartz at this point? Uh, myself, uh, Nick Lowe, Bob Andrews, Billy Rankin, and Ian Gom. So that's the five of us. Okay, let's let's go back a little bit further. When okay, where do you grow up? Sorry, where did I grow up? Yes. Yeah. Uh, mostly in a place called Tunbridge Wells, which is in Kent, or or in villages around. We we moved quite a lot, but never a long way. So around Tunbridge Wells in Kent. Yeah, the south, southeast corner. How far from London? Uh, 35, 40 miles. And did you go into London a lot, or were you living like in the country mentally? Um, we Yeah, we went into, into London a lot. At, at, uh, by the time pub rock had started, we we were living as a band together in a house in a place called Northwood, which was northwest London. So, as the as the uh, debacle in 1970 started, we all moved into London and lived pretty much in London. Okay, so let's go back. You're moving around. Why are you moving around as a family so much? Uh, my my parents used uh, moved a lot. We we were. We were house doer-uppers. We they bought houses. We fixed them up in the holidays. Uh, after a couple of years, we do it again. And was that was that their main means of employment, or did they have outside jobs? No, my my father was a school teacher in a in a private school, which is the opposite to yours. So right, you would call it a public school. Yeah. Uh, yes. And how many kids in the family? Uh, just two. And which were you, the older or the younger? I'm the older. Whatever happened with the younger? Um, she got married and moved away. She's she's um, now living in Scotland with a second husband. Okay. So you're growing up. When do you get exposed to music and excited about music? Uh, I think... Um, Pre, pre Elvis, I can remember. So I have to dig, dig into memories. I remember a record called Green Door, which uh, I have no idea who who sang that. Frankie, Frankie somebody, Frankie Vaughan maybe, um, and that that's the first record that I, I sort of heard as a, a record. But pretty soon after that. Uh, I was listening to Elvis Presley, and then all of the late fifties and early sixties music. And the real turning point was when I heard a tune called "Patchy," which was performed by a band called The Shadows. And that is why why I I wanted to be a guitar player. Okay. So, how did you hear these records on the radio? Did you buy the records on the radio? 
uh, mostly. Historically, we've learned that radio was very controlled in the UK with the BBC, and people would listen to Radio Luxembourg, Radio Caroline. What was your experience? Uh, that well, that Radio Luxembourg and Radio Caroline a bit late, later than than this, but yes, it most most radio was was via the BBC, and there were very strict um, rules about what could be played and what couldn't be played. Um, and it wasn't until uh, the pirate radio stations started up that we started to hear music from from the from more from the states um, that we hadn't had a chance to to hear in England. Now Liverpool was a dock city, and they say that the sailors came in with blues records, and that influenced the scene there. Was that only in Liverpool? Was it also where you were? Or in the Kent area, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't in the Kent area. I, the the top forty was probably in stock in the late local record store. Um, it was. It was uh, very, a uh, very young and and uh, unworldly our experiences at, at that time. I, I. It was a long time before I heard a blues record. So I don't. I don't remember which the first. I had a friend, an older friend who who was a guitar player who who got me around to his place one day and said, "Listen to this," and put on John Mayer, Mayer uh, Blues Breaker album, and that was probably the first time I heard a a blues record. And and I remember I remember listening to uh, Albert King in in the local record store. You could go into a booth. That happened in the States too, didn't it? You could get into a booth and if there was no one in the store, they'd just play the record for you. And so I used to do that. Um, okay, so yeah. you hear you hear Apache. Tell me about yeah. pick, picking up an instrument and playing. Um, I, I hassled my parents. Uh, they gave me a classical guitar uh, for my birthday. And uh, I just wanted to play Apache. <laughs> I learned that by myself without anything, just from the tune. Figured out some chords. And I got a book called 500 Common Chords, which was, which was a, a bad book to get because it showed you every chord in all of its inversions. And so every chord was a different chord in your head. But really, they were all the same, just moved up and down the fingerboard. So it was an, actually a much easier thing to learn to play guitar than a lot of other instruments, which I tried to play l- later on. And If you started with a book, do you know how to read music? Uh, no. I, so I did, I, younger at school, I think I got to grade four, piano grade four, it's called in this country. Uh, so I could read music. Um, but once I started playing guitar, um, I found that I I could I knew what was coming next and where it was um, quicker than I could read it uh, off the off the page. So I, I ended up really learning everything by ear. So you never took a lesson. Uh, and much later on, I took I did some lessons uh, when when some guitar academies opened up in London. That would have been in the in the eighties, I guess, and I went to some of those. And what were you learning to learn and uh, searching to learn? And what did you actually learn? 
Um, I guess I was searching to, to learn Steely Dan chords and parts. I did learn the solo to, um, oh, here's the memory stuff. Uh, well, it's a major Larry Carlton solo on a, on a Steely Dan album. Yeah. Kid Charlemagne, like, I've seen him play Kid with Steely Dan. Yes. Kid Charlemagne, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, when do you get an electric guitar? Um, well, this is where helping my father with with uh, doing up the house was. Uh, I got um, a shilling a day. That's ten cents, maybe maybe a, it's about ten twelve cents um, for helping. Uh, for which I had to do things like you know, crawl under the floorboards to pull the electricity cables through. Do you know that spiders are, are white and alive when they're underneath floorboards? Um, and uh, I I got enough money to buy a an electric guitar, um, but when I went to 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 buy one, uh, I thought I knew what it was that I wanted. Uh, my eye settled on something different, and my parents very kindly paid the difference for me. So I got a, a half-decent electric guitar. Which was what? It was called a Hofner Colorama. It was red and looked like the guitar that Hank Marvin of The Shadows used, and that was good enough for me. And what about an amplifier? Uh, yeah, I just got a little one, and I... It had valves in it, but I didn't really know what that meant and how important that was until much later Later on. Okay, so you're playing, and at this point, you're how old? 14, 15. Okay, and at what point do you say, hey, I want to play with others, and what happens? Um, when, I, when I left school, I left school at 18. Um, I didn't want to go to university, although I had a place. I wanted to be a guitar player. And okay, so, wait, whoa, 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 whoa! Before we get there, you never played in a group or anything in high school, or you know, whatever you secondary school. Yeah, okay. In my so this is part of part of my time that I I don't think about too much. Uh, I went to a boarding school when I was fourteen, and um, we had a band. We used to sneak out underneath, play underneath the stage in the hall in the middle of the night. Um, there were six of us. We were called Sounds 4 Plus 2. We didn't really know what we were doing, but it was a lot of fun. And uh, I guess part of it was sneaking out at night, in the middle of the night, to uh, smoke cigarettes, drink cider, and play underneath the, the hall. But um, we did go. Um, Nick Lowe's father was um, an RAF um commander and in germany and uh we went to uh we went there to play for the for, for the kids and we were all 15 16 so i think we played five shows we traveled in my my parents had a sleeper bus and uh yeah we all piled in with the two amplifiers and a, and a snare drum and I went and played. That was the only time that I had played before leaving school. And do you remember what the material was? Yeah, any rock and roll song that we could that a sing, one of us who could sing could put together. Although we we did we 
we played a, a lot of Beatles. I remember playing You Really Got Me and thinking, whoa, this is fabulous. <laughs> but um, yeah, that kind of, kind of so pop, what we would call pop music in, in England. Okay. Did music bring you together with Nick Lowe or were you friends before that? Uh, no, mu- music brought us to get together. We, we were two years apart in school and you didn't mess with people two years apart. So, so how did you actually hook up with Nick? Uh, I think we people were talking one day, and we all ended up in, in the in the room under the stage in the in the hall, and uh, that's that's kind of how it started. Was he always a bass player, or, or did that just you know we needed a bass player in the band? No, it uh, it wasn't. I think he had a bass by the time we went and played in Germany, but but. Um, before before then he had a had a long I think probably a bit of a clothesline, like a plastic line, uh sort of broomstick and a packing case and and just plucked at it. We were all just whatever we had, we just wanted to do be in this and and so we did we did what we could. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. 
And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. The Beatles hit in 62. What was it like when the Beatles hit? You were still in secondary school. Uh, it was it was it was everything it was wildly exciting um it was all people would talk about the the anticipation for the next single was 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 massive um yeah it was it was a turning point for the as it turned out for the world i would say Right, but you were a couple of years ahead of us in the UK, and all these other acts that we consider to be the British invasion in the US, you know, the ones from Liverpool, and then you have the Kinks. What was it like having that scene in the UK? Um, yeah, it was just it was just um it was it, it was almost everything that we thought about that I guess I guess we thought about football as as well and girls but but otherwise it was the it was the music it's what everybody was in, interested in all the hangouts in record stores and well I I was never allowed to go to a coffee shop but uh, I guess a coffee bar as they were called then that's what we talked about that, that overtook movies and things like that as the main event it was wildly exciting okay you graduate from what we call high school you decide you don't want to go to college your father's a teacher what does he have to say about that uh, he's not happy neither of my parents are happy but um they could see that it was what i wanted to do and uh they came up with an offer that they would uh, take care of me if I, if I got any money, I contributed part of it to the running of the household, and I had a year. And if I didn't, if it didn't succeed after a year, then I was either uh, out of my, out on my own or um, gone to university. Uh, so they looked after me for a for a year, probably longer in the end. So what happened in that year? Uh, in that year, somebody. Somebody knocked on the door or, or, or telephoned me. I think they knocked on the door um, or either that or somebody knew my mother um, and a, a, a word got sent down a line somewhere and this guy, whose name was Dave Cottom, turned up and said, I hear you play guitar and can sing. Do you want to be in a band? To which I said yes. So that band became known as Three's a Crowd and... Um, which later turned into Kippington Lodge. And we eventually made singles for EMI or Parlophone. Um, and that, that, was, that was the beginning of what I would call a, a career-ish. Okay. How long after he calls you are you making records for EMI? Uh, must, must be a year, a year, year and a half, you know, Something like that. A long time. And you're still living at home? What are you, you know, what are you living on financially? Very little. Hardly anything at all, really. 
So how does the band get a deal with EMI? Um, we, uh, um, a guy asked to manage us, saw us playing somewhere, asked to manage us. We said, okay. And he got, he got the deal. Um, I think they paid for us to do a couple of demos and, and he carted those around the, the record labels and we ended up getting a deal for five singles, which we ended up doing. So what happened with Kippington? Um, we made we made five singles. People changed, people came and left. So the the drummer who was the last person to leave, he left. Um and uh we that's where we got when we got Billy Rankin in. Um the bass player whose band it was uh, in the start, he left because he wanted to play soul music, and we didn't. Um, that's when Nick joined, uh, and then and then uh, we decided we needed a an organ player, and that's where Barry Landerman came, who was at the same school as Nick and myself. So basically, I phoned around people that I'd been at school with and said, "Do you want to join a band?" And people did, and so. Um, and then in the end, uh, Barry left. He went and played with uh, a real pop group called Vanity Fair. And, um, and then we ad- uh, did we advertise? I think we advertised and found Bob Andrews. Okay, what was Nick doing before you called him? <laughs> I have no, I have no idea. But seemed obviously nothing that important because he just jumped at the chance and. And came down. Okay, when does it go from Kippington Lane to Brinsley Schwartz? Kippington Lodge. The name was Kippington Lodge. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere in the middle of uh, that period. So uh, before 1970 and after. So I guess sometime in 69, 68 or 69. Um, and uh, yeah, they chose the other three chose the name. And uh, okay, okay, let's stop. The name ends up being your name, Brinsley Schatz. Sure. How does that happen? Yeah. Uh, we agreed that uh, that Kippington Lodge was not a good name and that we should leave that behind and all that it had meant. Um, and uh, we were going to write down our, our suggested names, get together and uh, p- pick them one at a time and, and choose one. Uh, and when that was due to happen on a Sunday, I think. And uh, when I turned up at Nick and Bob's flat, uh, they said, uh, no need to uh, do that. We've chosen already. And they told me, and I thought, oh, no, that's not very good. And um, But they said they were adamant, so that's how it happened. Well, there's a benefit to the PN being your name. And I'm sure yes, all this all this time later, because of the recognition, you're probably happy. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't think about it much after that. I, just, you know, I just complained and then said, "Yeah, okay, let's do that." Okay, is Kipping in Lodge? You made the five records for EMI. The band keeps morphing. Now it's Brinsley Shots. What happens then? Um. We saw an advert in the Melody Maker, which was the main music magazine of the time, um, advertising for a band that had their own equipment and wrote songs. And we did have our own equipment and we did write songs. So we called up 
the person turned out to be Dave Robinson, who came down to Tunbridge Wells and saw us play. Uh, we went to, for a few meals, mostly Indian meals, uh, with him. He told lots of great stories about stuff, and uh, we agreed to let him manage us. In reality, what did he have going on when he was courting you? Um, he he didn't have very much going on. Um, he was his company, which was just him, basically was involved with a small group of companies of small companies who were in, involved in the entertainment business, although uh, Forbidden Fruit, who were a clothes store up in London, uh, was one of them. There was a little film film company um and uh an album cover designer barney bubbles who went on to do quite a lot um and that was overseen by by this um money man and uh so apart from wowing us with stories about about hendrix and touring and various other things his idea was for us to play and and move up the ladder, play the right gigs, uh, and try to move up up the ladder, playing bigger places, get on tours with people with big bands. Okay, tell me about Dave Robinson, who ultimately goes on to form Stiff Records, and he continues to be a manager. What was he like? Was he a force of nature? Was he lucky? Was he yeah, intelligent? No, he, he was a force of nature, definitely. Did. Do you know the story of how he got us at the gig at the Fillmore East? No, but are we jumping ahead? I know that, I mean, I want to hear you tell the story, but let's go a little bit slower. So you're, okay. play, you're playing around, the band has your name. What ultimately happens? Um, it comes to a point where we realize that uh it's just not going to go anywhere unless we do something, that we do something uh, out of the ordinary or something big enough to get the attention of any kind of record label. Um, it was not very easy to get on. Uh, even if you had a, a manager, it was not easy to get, to get on. Um, so we decided that we'd go the route of trying to, to do something uh, that would catch attention, and the question was put to the other mem the other um, companies uh, that were involved in the in the group of companies, and they came up with some pretty bizarre ideas. Uh, but the one that stuck was that we would we would uh, it's like a circle that you have to close all of the all of the things at the same time. So. We would get a major gig in the United States. We could get a record company and a songwriting deal uh, so that we could pay for transporting press, music press from around the world to see us play uh, at, at, at whatever gig it was. Uh, so we, Dave had to, had to get the gig on a promise had to get the record company on a promise and so on and close them all at the same pretty much at the same time uh which he which he did um and that's what we we set about doing well that's what he set about doing so how did it play out 
Um, well, so now, now is it right to tell the story about how he got us the gig? Friday afternoon in London, he calls up and here are names again. God, I'm useless with names. Uh, who was it that owned or ran uh, those two gigs on the West Coast and the East Coast? Uh, Bill Graham. Bill Graham, yeah. So he calls up Bill Graham's office, gets to speak to Bill Graham, says, "I have a, I have a band. Uh, we have a, we have a, a record deal, uh, and we want to fly the world's press to come and see the band playing at the Fillmore East." Bill Graham thinks that uh, I've got a crazy guy on the phone, and uh, says to Dave, "Okay, send me the tape, and I'll see what what we can do," and puts the phone down and forgets all about us. Dave. Dave gets books a flight to San Francisco, I guess he was, he was in. And on Monday morning, when Bill Graham comes into his office, Dave is sitting in his office with the tape. Um, Bill Graham says, uh, hello, who are you? What can I do? Dave says, I called you on Friday. I've got a band. We've got a record deal. We want to fly the world's press to see them play at the Fillmore East. And I bought the tape. You asked for the tape. Here it is. Bill Graham said, it's okay, I don't need the tape, you've got the gig. And uh, that, that's, how, that's how Dave Robinson did stuff. He was a force of nature. You didn't say, no, go away at that point. Um, so, uh, so, yes, so we got the, the gig, and uh, I don't, do you want the whole story? It, yes. it goes on. Yes. <laughs> it's on forever. Okay, so I'll, I can only say it from my my point of view. I know there's lots of stuff out there. That there's been a book or books written. I haven't read very much of any of them. Um, I, you know, I was <laughs> I was there reading the book. Kind of boring. Um, so Dave Pyard started at the beginning for the press. He he got all the press together, um, that who who thought should come, and and rented a plane from Aer Lingus. He he was Irish, so maybe he had a few strings to, to pull. Um, which was supposed to take the press from Heathrow to Kennedy. Um, he sorted out our visa applications. Uh, we had a an exchange band. In those days, the musicians' unions of both countries had to agree before any visa could be granted. So our musicians' union had to to vet us and make sure that there was a another band from the states coming to take our place and vice versa. The band that was chosen was Love. And I'm going to forget the guy's name again. Who was the singer in Love? Arthur Lee. Arthur, he developed uh, laryngitis a few days before the visas were supposed to be done, so they cancelled the tour, which meant that we didn't have an exchange ban, uh, which meant we couldn't get visas. And we found this out oh, less than a week before we, well, Actually, less than a, less than two days before we were supposed to go off and go to New York. In New York, we were supposed to have three days rehearsal at the Fillmore East, 
uh, with with our requested gear, some of our own, but some hired our requested gear. And we were supposed to, well, we did uh, buy or arrange for the front three rows to be available for our press guests. Uh, the Fillmore East had a, had a deal where you could only use cameras in the building up until a certain time. Uh, and that was agreed upon. So our drummer, Billy, he was, he had an American and an English passport. So he didn't have a problem. He got his visa. And on the Tuesday morning before we were supposed to play, he flew to, to the States. Um, and as I remember it, uh, when we eventually managed to meet up again, he told us that, um, he had a limousine pick him up from the airport, drove into a hotel in Manhattan, and s- settled him in to his room. Uh, the driver gave him his room number and said, "I'm f- I'm for you at any time, day or night. You you want to go somewhere? You want to do something? Just give me a call, and I'll be there in ten minutes." So Billy says, "Great." Goes to his room, tries to relax. Uh, he's jet lagged, a bit freaked out because he's by himself and we're God knows where. He doesn't know where we are but at this point. And uh, so he said, he, he, in the, after sort of half an hour, 40 minutes, he decides he's going to go out. Uh, so he calls up the driver. The driver says, no problem. Meet me outside the front in 10 minutes. So Billy goes down, waiting. There's a guy standing along the pavement from him who's, uh, also looks like he's waiting for something. A car pulls up, two guys jump out, run across to the guy that's standing there to Billy and knife him in the stomach. Okay. This, <laughs> this is this is not good news for Billy. Goes, <laughs> holy shit. Uh, goes back to his his room where he stays pretty much for the for the remaining three days until we turn up. So that that was that's his story. Dave says to us, okay, we've been refused visas. Uh, so we applied, uh, but we're refused. Um, and Dave says, we'll go to Canada. We'll go to Toronto and get visas there. They won't know that we've been turned down here. Uh, it'll be, it'll be easy. So we get on the first flight to Toronto, check into a hotel, go down to the American embassy and fill in the forms for visas to the United States. And there's a question on the forms that says, have you ever been refused a visa to the United States from any country? So I think I got there first and said to Dave, what do we do about this question, Dave? And he says, just say no. So I said, no. We all did that. We filled them in, signed them off, took them up to this guy who who was an all-American. That's That's what I'll say about him. Uh, he took them. He didn't like us. We had long hair, and you know this was then. So different from very different from now. Um, he took them, and it was lunchtime. He said, "Come back after lunch, and uh, you'll, you know, you'll have your papers." So when we went back, we we got called. Same guy. He said, uh, "You guys think I'm." that we're crazy here. I've got a million dollar computer behind me that tells me that you were refused visas to the United States 
just a day ago in London. And we said, um, well, yeah, that could be true, sort of mumble, mumble. <laughs> and uh, he, he said, and I, so I remember this. This is, this is a quote. You guys want to go to the US of A, you got no chance. At which point he threw our papers at us and we left. Um, tail between the legs and, oh dear, what are we going to do now? So then uh, we all went back to, to the hotel. Uh, we had a day visa to stay in Canada, so we didn't go out because chances are we run into a, a policeman and get caught for crossing the road where we shouldn't or something like that, and they'd want to see our papers, and then we'd get extradited. So we stayed in the hotel while Dave uh, went out with our record company, our Canadian record com- company guy, who was great, uh, supplied all kinds of stuff that we said we needed. We pretty much ate burgers and watched Star Trek, you know, was, um, in the hotel. And uh, Dave was out trying. Um, so I believe, I believe a senator or someone high up uh, handled the deal for us got us waved through and um so on friday so the first gig first set was friday evening uh, at seven o'clock so friday just before lunch we turn up at the american embassy fill in the forms say yes to the dreaded question and hand them in to the same guy who's not happy because he knows that he's got to pass us um and he really doesn't like this now um, so at half past 12, he comes out from, from the back and, uh, puts a pile of papers, which look very much like our three visa application forms with our passports on the, on the counter in front of him and then goes to lunch. And he comes back about half past one and, uh, calls us over and pushes the papers and visa to us without saying a word. We take them, say thank you very much, uh, and um, and go. And in that hour, um, a ground crew strike on the northeast coast of the United <laughs> States is is uh, is announced, and there are no flights to or from. Um, so uh, we hire a private little plane, a five-seater Cessna, I think it was, uh, flown by a, a Japanese-Canadian who, who was a, 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 an agile flyer. I say he, he threw the plane across the sky quite a lot. Um, I have a, a problem, I still have the same problem, is when I go up in a plane and my ears pop, they don't pop you know, the other way around when I come down. So I come down, I can't hear very much. Um, and they hurt. So this was, I don't know, what are their little planes fly at four, 8,000 feet? So they were popping both ways all the time. And um, by the time I got, I got to, well, on the way, we landed at Buffalo. And we said, well, what's happening? And he says, okay, uh, passports. So we all got our passports out, our precious visas in them, and hand them over. He, he said, no, I don't need those. I just say you're American businessmen going home. So we didn't need a visa. As it turns out, there's a back door in Toronto. 
Um, uh, but so so then we took off and then we landed. Um, and I, I'm this is guesswork now, but I'd say around six o'clock, five thirty, six o'clock. Uh, in some field, it was just a field. It didn't seem like an airport at, at all. But but we landed in it. There were there were four limousines, uh, one each, one for Dave, one for the three of us. My guy, I got in. He was playing the best music I've I've ever heard. Um, handed me the uh, requirement, and um, and drove drove me in. Um, in in the queue with the others, a little limousine cavalcade, um, and uh, the thing that struck me, the great thing that struck me, was that the DJ playing the music, which was all you know, all of the good stuff, Van Morrison, Motown, Hendrix, you know, just really good proper music. And uh, he didn't say a word. The DJ didn't say a word until the half hour came, at which point he said, you just listened to and read out all the names and then started playing the next half hour's worth of music, which was, so in this country, DJs, you know, they, they seem to think that the radio show is, is, is their vehicle to stardom in, in some way, you know. It's not, it's not to do with playing music for people. and. Um, they always talk over the outros where some of the quite often some of the good stuff is sit, sitting on records. Anyway, I thought he, he it was great to hear that. Um, I think by the time we got in the dressing room, it was a quarter to seven. So we put on our stage clothes, got the guitars out, and went and played the first set, which was uh, not very good. Very disjointed. I couldn't hear anything, so I'd, I had to read people's lips, see where we were in the songs. Some of the time, it was it was not good. The second show, I don't know what time. So the next thing we did was we went to the to the dressing room, and uh, Nick went downstairs to um, to watch, and uh, the rest of us stayed up there. And um, after a uh, ten minutes or so, Nick turned up and said, "Okay, you've all got to come down and watch this. This is astonishing." So uh, we're all pretty shattered by this point, but we all went downstairs and watched Van Morrison, uh, who was blindingly good. The band were blindingly good, and he was too. It was amazing, and that one show was enough. Where we saw him three more times. But that one show was enough to change our minds about quite a lot of stuff in the, you know, what we wanted to be like, what we wanted to play, what was important to us. Um, and then we played, we played the other shows. The, the press had a, a dreadful time. Uh, the, the, the plane was late because it had problems taking off from Shannon Airport. Um, it had to be fixed at Heathrow. And those days at Heathrow, if you went past the passport check, the, there was only one thing, and that was a bar, uh, which, when as the plane was four hours late, uh, the press utilised uh, quite a lot. Uh, then they uh, they took off, 
and developed a landing gear fault and had to land at Shannon Airport. And the only thing there is a bar. They only do two types of drink. Well, then they only did two drinks. That was Guinness and, and Irish whiskey. And so when they finally managed to to make the journey and land late at this point at um, Kennedy, uh, they were a pretty wasted bunch. Um, and uh, because they were late, there was a, the plane was supposed to arrive sort of midday-ish where the traffic wouldn't be too bad but instead they arrived just as the as the Russia started uh, so I think there were 18 uh, stretch limos uh, to take them to the to their hotel potentially but ended up to the to the gig uh, and 16 uh, police on motorbikes uh, there was a lot of sirens <laughs> and stuff going on, um, and uh, I think three of them crashed and didn't make it. And uh, and the ones that did, well, half of them went back to the hotel because they were so shattered they just <laughs> wanted to go to bed, uh, so they never never even came. By the time they arrived, the the camera um, rule had had come into operation, no cameras after a certain time. They were after the certain time. Um, they'd opened the doors, uh, so the public would, went in. There were no, nobody sitting in the front three rows, so the public just used went and sat in the front three rows. So when the press arrived, their place at the front had been, had been taken. Uh, there were lots of cameramen, so they were refused entry with their cameras. Uh, I know a couple of them had their cameras smashed uh, with because complained, and uh, and uh, they whoever got in, I don't know how many how many of them did get in. Uh, they just had to sit where they could find a seat, and uh, we knew that they were they were there, but we also knew that there'd been a problem that had not been kept away from us, and. Uh, so we went. We went out, not knowing what you know, who was there, what was going to happen. Are the front three rows are people, uh, or are they just people? And so we we saw they were just people, um, and that was the worst of the four gigs that we played. We were stiff, untogether, and uh, really, really nervous. Uh, the fourth gig was it was all over. So. He really didn't care anymore, and really played quite well. And and things things like uh, occasional solos or or question answer bits in the in the music um, were applauded. People, some people whooped and everything. And we used to do this little countryish song called "Rock and Roll Women," um, which was which was humorous. Um, and people laughed, uh, so it went. It went much better. Um, when we got back, uh, we spent another day and a half, I think, taking photographs and stuff. And Dave Robinson turned up again. We went to is that Rikers Island? You're yeah. not allowed to. Yeah, you're not allowed to go there. We didn't know you weren't allowed, and just drove on there and hung around and took pictures, stuff. And the police came and. There's a great photograph that that uh, 
Dave has of him with his with his uh, one hand on his head uh, talking to a New York policeman who's got his hand on his gun, <laughs> um, and and uh, you know they were going to haul us off until they found out that a that we were English um, and uh, b that we were a, a pop band and so knew nothing of not being allowed on Rikers Island. And they said, hey, that's cool. You know, got new records. So we, you know. Um, so, but that was Dave again. Dave put in a situation where his band were about to be arrested at gunpoint um, and turning it all good um, within 10 minutes. It was, you know, he was so good at, at that. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. Okay, so despite the debacle, you end up making five records as Brindley Shots. <laughs> okay. How do you ultimately call it quits there and go to work with Graham Parker? Well, the the two are not are not um are not aligned in any way. They're 
they're separate things. So the band Vanquit, Nick called it, um, and uh, I, you know, I, I was quite shocked um, at the time. Um, we'd lived together for nigh on five years and done everything together and been through you know what you could call hell and high water there was no violence involved but we we'd been through a lot of uh, stuff um and uh so i was i was surprised uh our own reflection i i guess i shouldn't have been really but this we'd been treading water for a, a year or so um so so we broke up um we didn't have anything we were living in a rented farmhouse in uh, northwest of London, and um, all we had was our gear. Uh, really, we had a, a monster PA. Um, so we all took a piece and and went our our way. Um, I took my family. We tried um, we tried squatting and got <laughs> kicked out. Uh, pretty quick, and um, so I uh, we ended up uh, going to stay with my parents. Uh, when you again. say we, are you married at this point? What's what's going on? Yeah, I'm married with two children. And <laughs> what are you living on? Um, stuff from we have a a long time now. We've had a place called the Oxfam Shop, uh, which is secondhand for charity shop. So you could buy. A, you know, a pair of second-hand jeans or a shirt for 50 cents. We, you know, we lived, we lived together and we had, we had no money. Uh, all the money went on the band going forward. And um, there were three children living there. And so some of the money went to make sure that they were okay. And the rest of the time, we just carried on. And you get to that point when you in a band sometimes when you what you're doing is so that you can do the next one you're earning money so that you've got enough money to go and do the next gig or the next uh album or whatever um yeah that's that's what we lived on we lived on nothing okay so you go back to live with your you go back to live with your parents the band is broken up yeah okay so how do you get yourself out of that hole um, I didn't really. Uh, to start with, um, Martin, who who lived with us uh, in the big house in Northwood, um, he'd 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 been he'd roaded for us uh, and and left and formed a band called Ducks Deluxe. Uh, he called me up and said, "Hey, you want to join the Ducks?" So I said, uh, "Yeah." Great. So I joined Ducks Deluxe, who were also a pub rock band who were different from us in that we were very, very laid back. We, we played, sometimes we played things purposefully slow because the groove was better there. We wanted to, we, that's what we were looking for. The Ducks, on the other hand, played everything lightning fast. The drummer was, could say one, two, three, four, faster than anyone I've ever, I've ever heard. Um, so it was a bit of a, bit of a culture shock, uh, for me, but, um, and I, I think that was maybe two, two and a half months and then they broke up, which made me 
wondering if I was the cause of something. But um, and then and then uh, after after a bit, so I, I had I had virtually nothing. I had one guitar, a saxophone, and uh, so I I played saxophone uh, when my parents were out, and and guitar uh, whenever I could. And um, wrote a few songs. You know, I was just a musician uh, living at home. And um, then there was another phone call, which was Dave Robinson, who told me that uh, he had a he had a studio that he was learning how to use. He had a, a tube desk uh, that that be- had belonged to Decca Records. Um, and uh, what his plan was was uh, if if any time he heard of or heard a singer songwriter uh, or a musician that he thought was worthwhile helping, he would in- invite them to make a demo recording in his studio. That way, he would help them get a demo. He would help them maybe get advanced to a record deal of some description and he'd learn how to use his his equipment his he'd be an engineer as well as a record producing person and so he he said i had this guy um he writes great songs i think you'd really like him and um so we're we're making a demo and and then he said uh, martin and bob that bob andrews from the from the brinsleys and Martin Belmont from Ducks. Uh, they're with us um, with um, two guys from a, a reggae band. And now I really can't remember that. I've been thinking about this. I can't remember the name, that they, but they'd just broken up also. And um, that was Steve Golding and Andrew Bodner. And um, so this is, this is how I, remem- I remember it. I'm not convinced that everyone remembers this the same way. We've talked about it more recently, and uh, we end up saying, "No, no, no, that's not how it went at all." So, so as far as I remember, we went, we we went and did these demo songs with Graham Parker. That that's who it was. It was Graham Parker. So we met Graham Parker. Um, Martin might have met him earlier because he'd been Martin lived. Uh, at the Hope and Anchor, which was the pub where Dave had his studio, um, and uh, as we were packing up, I, I was thinking, "Oh, that went really well. That was really good. That was good, good fun. Everybody got on really well." So I said, "I think I said, well, that was good fun, wasn't it?" And everybody sort of looked at me and said, "Yeah, it was pretty good." So I said, uh, anyone fancy, you know, getting together and just to play somewhere, if we can find somewhere to play, anybody, you know, fancy noodling on some songs? So, and everyone said yes. So a little bit after that, Martin, uh, who knew the the proprietors at Newlands Tavern, which is in southeast London, in Peckham, uh, and they said, yeah, they had a, like a function room, quite a large room as part of the the pub, um, and they said we could use the the function room 
uh, in the afternoons because the pub was closed uh, with one proviso, and that is if we ever formed a band and did a gig, we'd do the first gig at their pub. So we thought that was a pretty fair deal. So we took that. So we started playing together for the hell of it. Basically, we we played songs that we liked, played song, any song that anybody wanted to sing. Uh, we played songs that we'd written or were trying to write. Um, and for two, three months, I would say, it went, it was really good. We started to, we got on better and better all the time. And um, we were sort of approaching the time where we probably could have could have done a gig or some gigs had we wanted to, but it never kind of came up because we we were doing it because we enjoyed it. Um, and then, and then uh, Dave phoned up again. Uh, he'd got a record deal for Graham based upon the the three tracks, and um, the record company wanted us to back him on the album and on touring. So not wanting to be a band and not wanting to tour or sign anything with anybody, we agreed that we'd, we'd play on the album and do one tour. And that started at the end of 1975. And at the end of 1976, we'd had 13 days off. As far as I remember, it was five or six tours of England, one of Europe, two of the United States, and made two albums. And we're, we're about to make the what was, what was going to be the Rumours' first solo album. Okay, let's talk about Graham Parker for a minute. You know, he comes out, he's a phenomenon. Ironically, he's playing relatively straight-ahead music when the New Wave and Stiff Records and Elvis Costello becomes a thing. But the first two records are phenomenal. I'm one of the few people who enjoys listening to Heat Treatment more. Mm -hmm. Something I'm going through has got a reggae feel. So, in the maelstrom, did you feel that this was going to break big? Did you? What was it like being inside the engine? Because this got a lot more publicity, a lot more traction than Brinsley Shots. Um, yeah. So the the things that you when you're on the road, uh, that the things about uh, what's happening uh, with uh, press and what's happening with sales and the rest of it. You, they're they're told to you, um, but and they, it's not that they go in one ear and come out the other. It's just that you're occupied because you're playing all the time, and so if you've got any spare time to think about anything, you listen to somebody else's music. But there's not very much time to do that either. So I, I missed huge chunks of music because I was playing all the time, and. Um, So you you know you get to hear that things are going well and then they don't for some reason and um, uh, you see people around you moving up. Um, I don't I don't know if we made any potential hit records. Um, I at the time I wouldn't have known what a hit record was like. Um, I had I had two young daughters though they they turned me on to Adam and the Ants and. Uh, 
a few bands from the early 80s. But um, yeah, it time goes past and you do stuff and some of it works and some of it doesn't. And to me, that's pretty much what is out of your hands. You can't influence it in, in any or many ways. Uh, so, so you just go along. And I guess if you don't like it enough, you, you go somewhere else. But, um, the overriding thing for me anyway, and I would say for everybody in the band is that we all really like Graham Parker's songs and really enjoyed playing them. And that's for me, that's good enough. It's earning a whole lot more money than I had been before in the Bruce's. So were you making any money? Yeah, a, a, a little bit of money. I wouldn't have said, so we were not rich, but um, we got by. Okay, so you're on the road essentially every day. How does that affect your marriage? Um, we're okay. Now that, are you still married to that lady? Um, we're together, let's put it that way. I gotta ask what that means. It means that we're, we're, we're together. We're, we're happy together. Okay, but you made it sound like, but you're still married, correct? Um, yes? Yes? No? No. no. Did you get divorced in, at some point? You never, or you never got married? Which one is it? Uh, we were divorced recently. You divorced recently? Yeah, nothing to do with being in a band. What causes a divorce at this stage of life? Goodness only knows. I, you know, I'm not um, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, so I have no idea. I, I do know one thing, and that is that um, being in a relationship uh, is, is a deep thing if it's going to work forever um, and can be hard work things things out of your hand um, get in the way of stuff it's difficult it's not surprising really is there a third party involved that's uh, no okay so let's go back to Graham Parker you work with Mutt Lang who then goes on to be considered one of the great record producers, certainly has success, and in my eyes, phenomenal. Did you realize he had that level of talent? Uh, at the time, no. No, I didn't. And the band switches from Mercury to Arista. Uh, yeah. Was that something you felt in the band? Um, well, it, it, you have to you have to remember that Graham Parker was an entity other than the rumor. I know we did everything together, but we were not, the rumor were not signed um, to anyone. We had, we eventually had a, sorry, um, a record deal with Arista as the rumor. Um, so where, where Graham went. So it, it seemed like the move from Mercury to Arista was a good idea, but it's, it's business stuff. I don't. I have no idea. Okay, so 
the band is not signed to the label, but was just on everyday life because you're playing all these gigs. Is Graham separate from you, or do you feel that you're all in it together? Um, I, I having having been in the in the Brinsleys, being in the Brinsleys ch- changes one to believe that you are in it all together. We were all in it together, and so rightly or wrongly, I, I that was my my um, impression, philo- philosophical idea of how it was. That's what I didn't think about it a lot. I just you just do what you do, and and uh, pretty much what I did was as as if we were all together. So I think that's how we we were. Okay, so how does it end with uh, the band and Graham? Um, I think Graham came to a full stop. Um, I think uh, he was unhappy with with the way things were going, um, with the amount of money that we he and was put into into touring and. All the all the other stuff. I think he needed to to stop uh, for a while and gather gather himself a- again and change things that that uh, he was not happy with. So it was it was completely amicable. We just he just said, "I'm I'm stopping," and um, you you guys go do what you what you want to do. Okay, Graham peels off like a stage of a rocket. Where does that leave you in the rumor, and what happens there? Uh, the the rumor um, carried on as a four piece without Bob Andrews, um, and uh, we made we made an, another album. So that would be our third album without Graham, um, and. And we had to make that twice. There was a a record company thing that that um, we had to obey a certain thing in the in a contract which we didn't obey, and and so we had we had a record that was released in the in in, in the UK, and then another version which we so we re-recorded everything, uh, which was released in. The United States. Which one was better? Uh, well, they were they were different. Uh, actually, we were talking about it the the other day. Uh, one of the songs is uh, on it is "Have You Seen My Baby," which is a Randy Newman song. Uh, and uh, Steve emailed us all and said, uh, "Come on," he said. Now I th- I heard all this. I think ours was better. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess the U, the USA one was was better. It was definitely it was definitely looser feeling. So how does it grind to a halt with the rumor? Uh, it just it just does stuff. You know, if if you if you can't get work that you can afford to do or that is is not what you want to be doing, then it it all it all stops. And and uh, Steve and I carried on. Uh, playing, we played with Garland Jeffries. Um, the band played with Garland Jeffries. We supported and backed him. Um, and then uh, later, uh, S- Steve and I 
um, went on to play with him on another tour. Um, and then, and then that stopped. And so that was the, the end of rumor had split up by then. Okay. But ultimately you go straight, you give up the music. How does yeah. that, how, tell me the thought process there. Um, well, going back a bit, um, when Graham got himself together again and made made another another his next album, uh, I was in New York uh, converting our agent's newly acquired loft building or loft floor into a five room uh, office. Did I did all the the walls, all the electricity, uh, lowered the ceilings. All of all of that, and made it into a pretty cool office space. And while that was, while I was doing that, I was I was staying with with uh, Alan, our um, agent. Um, and and Graham was looking for a guitar player. He had the rest of the band, uh, all Americans, um, and was looking for a guitar player. And they they'd arranged lunch. And came up with with no one. And Alan said, "Brinsley's staying with me." And Graham said, "Yeah, what? Okay." Was he up for it? And I, so I'd obviously said, "You know, if he asks, I'm up for it." So Alan said, "Yes, he's up for it." And Graham said, "What didn't I think of that?" And uh, so I got back playing. And then through the eighties, uh, I played, uh, made four albums, uh, produced Mona Lisa's Sister and Human Soul with him and um so it, and toured with him um but in 1981 i started very loosely working um fixing guitars i did one day a week at the store um which i really enjoyed they were really good to me they allowed me to go off and and p- play on tours and make records. So I'd spend sort of six months working with Graham and six months working in this store fixing guitars. And that got busier and busier until I was working five, six days a week. Um, and then uh, in 19, late 1989, I think, uh, we, were, we were touring. And uh, in, in America, I think it was Los Angeles and LAX, that I was, I was walking to, to the plane uh, perfectly okay. I was not freaked out or anything, not worried. And um, I don't know that they do that anymore. I don't, re- don't recall, but they used to put yellow and black tape, a big, wide yellow and black tape across the floor where you were going from one area to another. And uh, I reached this tape, which was at the top of the, the chute. What are those called? The chutes that you walk down to the gateway. To the place. Gateway. I was walking towards that. I got to it and stopped. And I looked down. I wasn't even looking. I just stopped. And I looked down. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. There's that yellow and black tape. Went to put my foot across it and I couldn't. So I, I was perplexed. I turned around, walked away, came back at speed, stopped, tried for about 10 minutes and stopped every time i ran at it stopped and i was standing there and they were calling last call for the flight and our keyboard player who had a tendency to 
leave everything until the very last moment, walked up behind me, put his hands on my shoulder and said, friends, thanks for waiting for me and pushed me across the line. At which point I walked down to the plane and had a very pleasant flight up to, I think it was to Oregon. Um, and that was the last flight apart from flying back to England on that tour. And I got someone to push me over the line. And I saw that's how I got on the plane and came back to England. And then for from then until 2010, I didn't fly and knew that I couldn't get on an airplane again. Um, and then so in you know, when when I that sort of packed it up for me, really, I, I couldn't do it anymore. And, okay, uh, so wait, 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 wait. What was going on there in retrospect? 20 years you couldn't fly. Did you just have a panic attack? How did you get over it? I don't know. Well, I didn't need to get over it because I never got on a plane. I was pushed twice and was okay. Well, well, well you haven't met, but you started to get on planes again, correct? Yeah, in 2010, yes. So how did you do that? Um, I went to the doctors and said, um, I've got to, I've got to uh, fly. I have a problem getting on the plane. Um, I've got to fly to the States. And so I was wondering if there's anything you could give me that would, would harm me enough to get on the, the plane. And she very kindly said, just have a couple of bottles, a couple, couple of glasses of red wine and you'll be fine. So Martin said he would help. Martin's not very happy flying either. So I thought, well, this is going to be fun. Someone who doesn't like flying with somebody you can't get on a plane. Um, and we got to, we got to Heathrow, Terminal 5, which was very pleasant. Uh, walked around for a bit and then saw that it was time we could go and check in. So we went to the check-in desk, presented our passports and papers and everything, tickets. And the guy said, oh, I'm very sorry to have to tell you that your plane's been delayed. So I, so I said, I, so I'd had the two glasses of wine by now. So I, I laughed and said, and uh, so what are you doing? And he said, uh, we're getting another one. And and so, and I said, and that one will be all right. Will it? Um, and. <laughs> sort of spluttered a bit and he said yes sir that one will be fine uh and um and it was but um the wine had taken its effect i needed more and uh so i don't remember an awful lot about what happened after that but i was fine and and had and have flown quite a quite a reasonable amount since and uh enjoyed it and not had a problem do you still drink the two glasses of wine absolutely yes <laughs> welcome to 500 greatest songs a podcast based on rolling stones hugely popular influential and sometimes controversial list i'm Brittany spanos and i'm rob sheffield we're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, 
or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. Okay, so tell me about the period when you couldn't fly, what you were doing. I, I fixed guitars uh, in, in a store. I I branched out of my my by myself a couple of times. I got so this is this is about from the moment that I heard Apache. Only thing that I I was really in in love with in terms of things were guitars, electric guitars. Um, com- completely fascinated by them. I loved I like looking at them and poring over them. It's a it's a boyhood fascination that never never went away so to be able to work on them all day long and be paid for it and be able to play them while you're fixing them and learning about why they go wrong and how they go wrong and how to fix them was was fascinating and i i'm lucky to have to have been able to to do that to be with guitars the thing that i love all my life Okay, I have a Gibson Acoustic SJ. My mother left it in the crawl space. It's got some mold on the top. Is that something you could fix? Uh, I'd have to, as as all repairers say, I would have to see it, but potentially, yes. Okay, what I'm asking, really, because you're in the UK and I'm in the US and we're not going to actually do this, Um you can do things besides the truss rod and adjusting strings. You can work on the whole instrument. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not so good inside acoustic guitars. That that you know, fixing struts and things like that. That's um, 
that's that's difficult. So, but refretting, fret dressing, as I call it, um, that's that's a, a complicated thing. Tarnak do strange things, um, and so if a guitar needs setting up, it also might need a refret, which is uh, a big job and has to be done carefully and accurately. Um, but the the main the main thing is is that I I because I've been a guitar player for so long, I kind of intuitively know how a guitar is supposed to feel. When when I'm doing the final part of setting up a guitar, uh, which is which to do with the nut and the truss rod and the action, there seems to be a sweet spot, and I'm prepared to work until. I find the sweet spot if it's there and findable. That that's my my thing. I'm interested in making guitars feel like guitar players think they should. Okay, my understanding is a professional of your caliber would not play a guitar off the rack that they would immediately send it to someone like you to set it up is that true um yeah i think um i haven't i haven't tried all of them but yes in in general there isn't a there isn't a guitar so there are specialist makers but in the run of the mill guitars that um there isn't one that wouldn't benefit from at least a setup and probably Possibly a fret dress and a setup. And just to be clear, a setup would entail without the frets. Uh, that would entail adjusting the truss rod so that the the neck was true as true as it can be. Um, the the action and the nut cut correctly. The nut slots cut correctly, um, and adjustments to make sure that it it plays in tune all the way up the neck. Okay. Is this lucrative business? Um, if you were doing it for yourself, um, yes. Uh, if you were doing it uh, in a store, um, not wages are not fabulously high. So you would go back and forth being independent? What was that about? Um, uh, the independent stuff was because uh, while I was... I was getting involved in fixing guitars. I also got interested in guitar amplifiers. And at one point, quite accidentally, I stumbled across a little part of a circuit, guitar amplifier circuit, that made things, made them sound um, very comfortable, that helped you, made you want to carry on playing. Um, and I've, I've, I've talked to a couple of friends who are, Amplifier, you know, proper amplifier <laughs> designers and repairers who know what they're talking about. Uh, and um, one in particular was really interested in it, pointed out to me why that happened electronically, um, and and pointed out to me that no no electronics person would do that, but actually, it it there seems to be no reason not to. It works. And it sounds very good. Um, so I was, I attempted to start making um, amplifiers 
I, I, I sort of came to a halt because I couldn't find anybody who would print out a faceplate, you know, with bass, middle, treble, and volume, and the name written a, across it that you would stick to the front. Um, it would cost two and a half grand whether you wanted one or whether you wanted 2,000 or 4,000. The setup work was was what cost the money, and the making of it was just the cost of a bit of plastic or wood and a bit of machining. Um, and that kind of stopped me. And then Graham ph- phoned up and said, we're doing it again. And so I stopped being a, gu- a guitar repairer and an amp builder modifier. There's quite a lot of my modified amps uh, out there in this country. You know, I did do quite quite a lot, and some one in particular is in a in a studio where apparently all the guitar players that go there use that amp. So, okay. So, what does it look like that you work with Graham? Um, Graham phoned up. I was the last person he phoned, and he said. He said, uh, I know you're going to say no because you can't get on an aeroplane, but I'm going to try any- anyway, and everybody wants me to. So, um, And he explained what he was, what he was doing, which was to uh, make another Graham Parker and the Rumour record. And um, he'd love for me to be involved, and could I get on a plane? And I said, uh, absolutely, no problem at all. No worries. Just tell me when I'll be there. Great. And uh, so we had a chat about it a little bit, and then I put the phone down and sat back and thought, shit, I've just said I'll get on an aeroplane. And uh, and I did, and it was all fine. Okay, so at this point in time, okay, let me ask you a different question. While you're a luthier, are you continuing to play music yourself? Yeah, well, uh, if you're fixing a guitar, you need to play it for 10, 15 minutes before you start. You play it for 15 minutes afterwards, play it for a couple of hours if nobody's hassling, hassling you. So I played every day, probably more than I played when I was on the road, where you don't get much time for it, um, apart from the, the gig. Uh, and and uh, later on, I used to hang around in sound checks as long as I could. But, um, yeah, so I played a lot. And uh, at some point, started writing songs as well, which I hadn't done for quite a long time. And did you play in any bands in that era? No, I I, well, I played bass with in in a friend's band. They their bass player left, and they couldn't find another one. So I said, "I'll play bass for you." So I I started playing bass, and uh, we played a gig, which is really good. I love playing bass. Um, okay, so you recently put out a new album. At this yep. late date, especially in the crazy world we live in music now, where the biggest household name acts put out records and they're immediately stiff, what motivated you to make a record now? Um, I think what, what motivated me finally was that the one that the, the tune that I recorded um, to start with turned out the experience of it and and it itself turned out so well that I I wanted to carry on. I had more songs, and and I thought you know why not? This will cost me a little bit of money, but 
hopefully it would be fun and and it and it was but it, and it started with uh, James Hallowell who'd played with us uh, on Mona Lisa's sister he was a keyboard player uh, he's got this little studio up in uh, in uh, near Richmond and um he came to uh, one of the Graham Parker and the Rumour gigs uh, in London, uh, Shepherd's Bush Empire, and came backstage and said hi and said, you know, we're just talking. So what are you what are you doing? So I said, I'm doing this and writing a few songs. He said, well, if you want to come and record one, I've got a little studio. Why don't you come down? And so I did and recorded a song, which I wanted to record for a relative's wedding as a wedding present. And uh, which we did, and and carried on. Both said, we both looked at each other after we played it back in its mixed form. Said, "Well, that's pretty good, isn't it? Should we do some more?" And he, he said, "Yeah, let's do some more. We could make an EP." And before we knew it, we'd made an album. Okay, if you made it in his studio, essentially the cost was lower, non-existent. Uh, no, um, I got what's what we call mates rate, uh, but um, I pay. You paid, but there's a record company. The record company reimburse you, or are they just releasing the record? Uh, well, th- if we're talking about Tangled, so I was talking about my, the first album. Okay, so you got uh, the first. Uh, okay, well, continue the narrative. Yeah, so you make they make the so first I'm, record, but you put the first record out yourself. Yeah, that's right. And and sold it where I where I could. Uh, there was one tour uh, with Graham. I uh, sold sold some on that. Uh, a Japanese guy called me up and wanted two hundred of them. So, yeah, I just sold it where I I could. I still have a few left, um, and I haven't broken even on that. The the second album, Tangled, um, that I I paid for, and it's selling. Uh, a few, and so I will get reimbursement at some point for some of it. But um, as I think, I said, we don't. Do, we really don't do this for the money because because it's not it's not there. It's very difficult, um, but we enjoy it. So, what was the motivation for Tangled? Um, well, mainly because it it started because there was the there were songs that. Um, as as I as I was recording, um, unexpected, there was I was writing more songs, and so some of the the songs that I wrote while we were making it um, seemed to be better better suited to some of the other songs that were already there. So we ended up with uh, three four songs that were, you know, on their way to being finished. Um, and so there was the beginnings of another album and I had more songs ready. So we just carried on and, and now we've carried, we've carried on and Tangled is, is out there and I've got three or four songs almost finished and uh, eight, 10 songs written. Um, some of them are, have just got basic. Demo tracks. Some of them are almost finished, so I have another album. It's it's not like it's not like I'm making albums. It's that like I'm just recording songs, and 
at some point you have enough for an album, so you put it out. Now, are you playing live? I'm not at the moment. Um, I'm afraid I, I don't, I trust very little about our government and what it's saying. I think, uh, so I think today's COVID infection rate went up to over 45,000. It's been 45,000 or above for the last two weeks. Uh, no one, well, the only people wearing masks are doing it voluntarily. So you can go into a supermarket and half the people are unmasked. There's obviously hundreds of thousands of people in this country with it. People who have been double vaccinated have died, have caught it and again and died. Um, so I don't think it's safe. So prior to COVID, were you, were you playing live? Um, uh, no, well, I was playing with Graham, um, and pretty much, uh, off, after that, I, I was in sort of mid, mid doing things and, uh, COVID came as a, as a surprise and I was lucky to be able to actually finish Tangled because that, it got really difficult, um, with traveling and the studio and. Okay. When was the last time you played with Graham? Um, five, I'd say five years ago now. Four, four to five years. And is that the last chapter, or you never know? Oh, sorry? Last is that the last there. chapter, or might you play with him again? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I'd, I'd be very happy to play with him again if he's up, up for it. Um, Okay, yeah. all, all these people that have gone through, Bobby Andrews and Nick Lowe, et cetera, have you maintained connection with all of them? Um, no. Uh, I I think uh, if I've talked to Nick a dozen times since the Brinsley's broke up, that's about, about it. Um, uh, Bob... Um, yeah, more, more, um, obviously, because he, he was, uh, in the rumor and then, and then, uh, in the rumor a second time, um, when we did it again. Um, so I'm in touch with, uh, members of the rumor and Graham. Um, okay. At this late date, do you get any royalties or any, you know, public performance monies? Yeah, I get. I there's a great, a great company or sorry, a company organization called PPL, and they send me check. Enough to live on? Uh, not enough to live on, no. But I don't, I I don't know where it, it comes from. Sometimes it's it's uh, you know what I'd call quite a lot of money, um, but sometimes it's only yeah, it's like fifty pounds, and sometimes it's a thousand or two. Um, but yeah, you can't. You can't live live on that. I, so I'm I'm re officially a retired person. Um, so uh, the I I I'm working very very little. Um, really working more on songwriting and and uh, arranging things in my head, ready for the studio. Um, hopefully, going into the studio again in a week's time um, to record 
at least one, if not two, song new songs. Um, if you're getting this limited money from uh, from your past work, what are you living on? Um, just just money that I have. Um, I inherited a little. Um, money comes, little money comes in. I seem to be able to balance the books fairly reasonably. It's it's not. I'm not I'm not wealthy or anything, and and really I I want to do what I what I like doing, and for as long as I can. So. Well, you've saved money from your musical, you know, a lot of musicians, when they get to the end, they didn't save any money. So you saved money from your musical endeavors? Um, yeah, no, I think I, th- I think what I inherited is what keeps me um, above water uh, doing doing what I, I do. But I seem to be able to go along and, and uh, make ends meet um, without being hugely successful or wealthy. Okay, I'm just going to ask, in America we have Social Security. I assume you have the equivalent in the UK. It's not enough money to live on here. What's the situation in the UK? Um, We have have a pension, a national pension scheme. So everybody does that if they work. They pay every week uh, into it. And at the end of when you stop working, when you when you retire, when you reach reti- official retirement age, um, you get paid every your pension, your state pension every every month. And is it enough to live? I mean, you've inherited money, but for the average person, is it enough to live on? Um, I, I would say just, <laughs> but I think I think most people have have something else other than I think. I think most people who are, who are, who we, you wouldn't regard really poor. No, we have a lot of poor people in this country, but but everybody seems to have enough to get by and go on holiday. <laughs> okay, let me ask you about a couple of tracks because I mean, I did buy yeah. the fir- first Rumor album. I did see it at the Roxy, but going into some of this Graham Parker stuff, can you tell me the process of writing something? I'm going through because it has that white reggae feel. How does that a, a song like that come together? That's that's a, one of Graham's songs. I know, but did he come with that groove? Um, yeah, I think I think so. He he usually comes with with um, with a groove and, and playing acoustic guitar, uh, and he would also he would also play. Little chord changes, tiny little things that uh, ca- more than occasionally I've cottoned onto and used um, as a as a tune or a riff in the song, like like um, "Nobody Hurts You." That the guitar part that I play is based upon something he was doing on on rhythm on a rhythm part, so I'd hear that. Um, yeah, I think I think. Um, you know, it's a, a broad range of things. Sometimes he has he has no idea, and we we would we would uh, kind of arrange it between us. Um, sometimes he would have a, a a lot of idea, and and we'd step back and and try to you know put what he was 
talking about into a band scenario. On Fool's Gold, on the same album, the Heat Treatment album, it starts with almost a waterfall of flourish sound. Who would come up with that, or who did come up with that? I I don't remember. I mean, <laughs> was it always Graham, or sometimes the producer? Um, I th- I think well, the producers. So d- there are different producers who all work differently. We had a. We've had a few odd things with some of the producers that we we worked with. Um, I um, I don't know the the sound that you're you're um, you're talking about. Um, it's a long, long time since I listened to Fool's Gold. It's not that long ago that I played it. But what are your two favorite Graham Parker and the U- Rumor tracks? Love gets you twisted and watch the moon come down. Okay, you ha- you must have been asked that before because you had the quest you had the answers right away. No, I, I've I haven't been I haven't been asked it. Uh, well, I've been asked it indirectly, and so I, I, those but those are my two favorite tracks. And I've just recorded uh, well, I've recorded Love Gets You Twisted, and I'm I'm part recorded Watch the Moon Come Down. So they are fourth. They're in my head at the moment right so uh if your musical career what are you most proud of i've been asked this before as as well so as a as a guitar player um the solo on this town which is on max um the solo on what is that song uh I think of the song as selfish because that's how I how I wrote it. But there's a track on unexpected, um, the solo on that, and the solo on stranded. Um, on um, the work, so proud to have been in the rumor, and proud to have worked with Graham. I'd, I'd say happy more than proud. I'm happy to have done those things um and uh yeah all, all the day-to-day stuff that that uh, you do when you're on the road helping each other through various things and and uh proud to have, have built an amplifier not quite from scratch but pretty much from scratch that everybody that goes into that studio plays that's Ralph Salmon's studio. He's the drummer who played on Unexpected. Um, he's he's um, you know quite a big drummer. He's got a little studio. People go and record stuff there, and uh, all the guitar players love this this amplifier. So that's it. I'm I'm proud to do that kind of stuff. Okay, Brinsley, I think we've uh, hit the high point of your career. I have a million more questions. Maybe maybe one time when we're face-to-face, you're quite the storyteller. Uh, I want to thank you so much for doing this, and hopefully you'll have continued success with Tangled. Thank you very much. It's been good talking to you. Um been nice to talk to somebody who who knows uh, the music industry and, and uh, bands and players like yourself thanks so much till next time this is bob left sex
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 